Okay, guys, welcome to The Dad Presents. This episode is brought to you by CBDMD.com. Go there and use the code The Dad Presents for 15% off on high quality CBD products that'll help all your pains. I use it, gets rid of all my aches and pains from my 27 million surgeries for my neck, my back, my shoulder, my wrist. Get it, it's good stuff. All right, now let's get into it. Okay, guys. Welcome again. It's the 80th episode today of The Dad Presents, and we got Mark Hyman, author of Pardon Gate, which comes out today, and he's also the author of Washington Babylon, which is a book from George Washington to Donald Trump, Scandals That Rock the Nation. Now, he's also been called the worst person on earth by Keith Olbermann, narrowly beating out the RNC and Kanye West. So, Mark, hello, and before we get into the book, um, clarify for me, am I talking to the worst person on earth? Depends. If you ask my wife, depending on what day of the week it is, I could be the worst person on earth. Right. <laughs> Same with my wife. I know. I know the feeling. Um, your, yeah, your wife I mean, thinks that of me as well? Yes, yeah, she does. No, no. Of me, depending on the day. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure all married men can relate to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and, I mean, Keith Oberman, that guy. I mean, unless you've murdered hundreds of thousands of people in the Middle East, like you don't really compare it to the DNC or the RNC. So I mean... <laughs> Those, those things are just ridiculous. And Kanye, you know, I find it amazing that whenever a black man associates with Republicans at all, he immediately just gets trashed. Like for all their ideas about diversity, they just will not tolerate that, which I find pretty disgusting. Um, uh, the, par- the party of tolerance is actually the party of intolerance. Yeah. Yeah, it's becoming that way. It wasn't always that way, but it really <clears throat> seems to be going in that direction. So into the book, um, which is out today, the basic premise of this book is that Bill Clinton pardoned some like really horrible people, and they, ma- they massively profited from this. Now, you know, we all hear a lot about Bill's philandering, and frankly, I don't really care about that, but I, I really haven't heard much about this. So why has this particular subject not gotten much attention? Well, first of all, it's the Clintons. Remember, the media leading all up to and through his entire presidency and since then, they've had this adulation of Bill and Hillary Clinton. They've mm-hmm. put them on a pedestal for so many years. Presidents have the absolute power to pardon people. And there probably have been a few pardons throughout history that people have disagreed with. But everything pales comparison to what Bill did. For the first six years of his presidency, he was the stingiest president of all time. In his first four years, he pardoned 54 people. Only Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, pardoned fewer people in a four-year term. He pardoned 45. And there were only 5 million people in the country at the time. There were nearly 300 million people. And Bill was a stingy guy. That's okay. Presidents are allowed to be stingy as well. But Pardons and commutations, the category of executive clemency, is official forgiveness for past crimes. And there are lots of reasons why people get pardoned. And it could be something as simple as perhaps a professional wants to have a professional license restored so he or she can continue their trade, their business. That's understandable. But you mentioned a few moments ago, Bill Clinton was a stingy guy until Hillary announced she was going to run for the United States Senate. And he went from being the stingiest one of the most generous in his last 18 months as president. And it was a yard sale of pardons. And it wasn't just handing out pardons left, right, and center. These went to some of the sketchiest people out there. 
um, drug dealers, major drug dealers, drug kingpins, the tra- the money launderer for the Cali cartel. These yeah, were really bad dudes. And so many of them had connections either politically or financially to the Clintons or their brothers, Roger Clinton, Hugh and Tony Rodham. And in the case of Hillary, she was collecting financial and political IOU. She cashed in when she ran for not only the Senate, but twice for the U.S. presidency. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I read the book and um, I mean, I mean, it really blew my mind. Really did. Um, so, yeah, like, like you said, Thomas Jefferson, um, he's he, Clinton approved less than any president going back to Thomas Jefferson. He, he, he put away 98 percent of them. He rejected. And then all of a sudden he turned on a dime and just greenlit everything. So, I mean, what that suggests is that the Clintons were using pardons in exchange per, for political favor and it was working. So that also suggests that there's a lot of people in Washington who are willing to cut some shady deals. Now, my, my question is, is that is it legal? Sadly, it is. Um, there were some hearings that were conducted afterwards, but the president's power is absolute. It's unconstitutional. We have an expectation that our presidents, even those we like or dislike, at least will act as honorable people and will be judicious in how they use pardons. And again, it could be to give forgiveness to someone who perhaps needs to have a professional license to restore, restored so he or she can go back to whatever business they're in. But these were really bad dudes. Yeah. Harvey Weinig was the money launderer for the Cali cartel. Right. The Cali cartel, the cocaine folks. Yeah. Him. Um, Carlos Vignali, a drug kingpin in Los Angeles, was caught shipping 800 pounds of cocaine to Minnesota. He got pardoned. Yeah, when you, you mentioned that one and, and you said Hillary's brother got a quarter million dollars for that. Um, that can't be legal. Is that legal? And, and if not, do you have, is there proof of that? Well, certainly the case of uh, Hugh Rodham, he admitted the money that he received. Um, we know there are a number of people that the Rodham brothers and Roger Clinton had contacted and offered to hustle up pardons for him in return for some kind of compensation. Um, there was some scrutiny done of this in the House of Representatives afterwards, but nobody can find any laws that were broken. And if you're smart enough and nuanced enough to say, well, I was a representative, I helped push things forward, there's nothing that seems to present, prevent that from happening other than someone's good conscience. So it seems- in, the, in the case of Roger Clinton, he was cold calling people in the final months of Bill's presidency, offering to hustle up pardons in return for cash, which raises two questions. One, who did, how did he know who'd even submitted a pardon uh, or submitted a pardon request? And two, how did he know how to reach them? I spoke to someone just this week who I won't mention in the book because we talked about some specific things, but this individual received a phone call on their private cell phone the night before and said, another chance here to get a pardon for $100,000, I'll push it through. That person said, how did he even know that I submitted a a clemency request and how did he get my private cell phone number? Well, it's the White House. Clearly somebody told Roger, perhaps Bill, maybe somebody in DOJ, but someone had to give him that private cell phone number. Okay, so it so it seems if it's a family member of the Clintons, they can take money and pass along political favor um, and a recommendation to Bill, and that's legal. But Bill can't personally profit from it. That that seems that seems pretty uh, shady. Um, and if they were making those calls to those people, 
Bill must have been giving that information to them of who actually submitted applications. So isn't that isn't there some kind of um, law about giving out that information? Like that's that's high priority information. I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen anything that in my in my research that shows it was against the law. It's Washington D.C. People leak stuff all Man. the time, and certainly in the Clinton White House, there was a lot of "you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours." And clearly, between the Rodham brothers and Roger Clinton, they had enough information as to who was applying for pardons. And don't forget, in some cases, the scuttlebutt was people knew to reach out to these brothers that there was a way in. I mentioned in the book the case of two guys from Arkansas who were convicted of tax fraud. They were essentially nobodies, if you will, but they live in Arkansas. They reach out and they hire an attorney from a, D, from a New York City law firm. They hire an attorney by the name of William Cunningham, who's never prepared a, an executive clemency petition in his entire life. He prepares one, turns it into the White House four days before Clinton leaves office. It gets headline privileges above 1,500 other clemency petitions, mm. and they get their pardons. Mm. Oh, by the way, William Cunningham was also the treasurer of Hillary's Senate campaign. So the scuttlebutt clearly was reach out to Hillary's campaign treasurer. He's a lawyer. He'll prepare the pardons. They'll get it done. In general, I mean, it, it seems like these pardons, it, it's a lot of power to give one person. Like, what, where did the pardon come from in the first place? Well, it certainly it goes back to the days of England when there was the, the king had the authority to overturn some sentences. And our founders looked at this as a way to, again, give forgiveness to people who may be in need, who perhaps have shown remorse. Sure. And that's a key point. There was, le even though the pardon power is written in the Constitution, there was legislation subsequently written and a process and procedure to go through. And one of the things we expect is the individual who's applying for clemency is one, is not going to maintain their innocence. They're going to admit that they're, that they were guilty of a crime right, and they're going that, to show some level of remorse but you said and they've turned over happen. a new leaf that didn't happen in a lot of these that neither of those things oh many times there were people in fact there were two people who were actively under fbi investigation when bill clinton gave them pardons one of them glenn broswell was subsequently indicted tried and convicted of further crimes so the process was that bad now one of the things your your uh, um, audience needs to know on Bill Clinton's final day as president, he gave out 140 pardons and yeah, 36 commutations. <laughs> Out of the 176 total, 47 of them never went through the Department of Justice for its mandatory review and the mandatory review of the FBI. That's to make certain that the, that the clemency application is accurate, sure. that they aren't engaged in further crimes. And 30 people didn't even submit a, a, an application at all. No. It was just a phone call, a sticky note, a handshake, who knows? But there were people who never submitted clemency applications who got pardons. In many cases, they were shocked they got them. They didn't even know they were being considered. This was that free-for-all at the end. And there clearly was an, an effort by Bill Clinton to pad his list of people who were who'd received executive clemency with some, let's call them nobodies, if you will, some run-of-the-mill people. As a matter of fact, Bill Clinton had given pardons to people that he had turned down years earlier. He pardoned one guy who died five years earlier. Hmm. So they were just pulling names out of a hat. There were still 1,500 people who had had properly completed 
executive clemency applications that had gone through the Department of Justice for review, had gone through the FBI for review, properly vetted, ready to be looked at, and Bill Clinton never looked at them. They sat off to the side, but he handed out pardons and commutations to people that were friends, friends of friends, people who paid off a brother, a brother-in-law, or perhaps could offer political favors to his wife. Unreal. I mean, a, a couple things from this. So two, two things that really stood out from everything you've just said is that he was doing no pardons until Hillary decided to run for office. Then it became a free-for-all. And then on his last day, he just went berserk with it. And also, I, I read in the book that they, they've made a, basically about a quarter billion, with a B, dollars since being in office. And neither of them has a job. So is any of that connected to these pardons? It's kind of hard to tell with that, but certainly and what I've, I've laid out with all this, and it's my contention that the, the Clintons pay to play scheme that they've run for the last two decades really began with these pardons. They had the ability to Let me interrupt. Let me, let me pay to play. We hear that all the time. For my audience, what actually does that mean? And give some examples of like what they've done, pay to play. There was a period of time after the Clintons had left office when Hillary became a member of the U.S. Senate and Bill was a traveling salesman, if you want to call it that. He was in high demand, as a lot of presidents are, giving speeches around the world. They'd started the Clinton Foundation. They were accepting contributions from individuals and governments from all mm-hmm. around the world. When Hillary was nominated to be the Secretary of State, she signed a disclosure, an agreement with the, the Obama administration and said, I will disclose all the contributions I get to the Clinton Foundation, except they didn't do that. They hid contributions in the millions of dollars. So at the same time, Hillary was Secretary of State and certainly had a lot of influence on U.S. policies. Bill was going off and doing presentations and giving speeches, and we saw the amount of money he was being paid had risen dramatically after Hillary became Secretary of State. And not only Secretary of the State, of course, the Whisper campaign, would she would be the next president after Barack Obama. And the money came in by the tens of millions at a time. And wow. it was a staggering amount of money from foreign governments, foreign yeah. businesses, foreign corporations. What really was telling was after Hillary lost the 2016 election, the money evaporated. All these countries that were giving her Right. The Clinton Foundation, millions of dollars. And they raised, we know, over $2 billion. Mm. That money evaporated overnight. By January of 2017, they laid off almost all their staff at the Clinton Foundation because they weren't bringing any money in. And the Clintons personally had made about $250 million in personal funds from giving speeches and doing presentations. And that's that whole pay-to-play scheme. There was this great... uh, trail of them doing an event or Hillary making a decision that might have um, impact on a country. And then right. perhaps the king of that country decided he's going to give $12 million to the Clinton Foundation. Right. So, so like Saudi Arabia, the royal family is giving money to the Clinton Foundation, to the foundation in expectation that Hillary is going to be president and do some things for them. Uh, they, they took money from the Chinese military. Um, so that all that stuff actually is legal because it's going to their foundation. But is the, is the money that went to their foundation, like it's supposed to be a charity. So is that money, has, it, has there ever been an accounting of it so we know where that money went? Or is it just a mystery? Uh, I don't think there's been a thorough accounting of it. I do mention in my first book, 
Washington Babylon, I tell a story about Uranium One, which was the U.S. selling a good portion of its uranium assets to the Russians, if above all people. Yep. And that was all engineered by Hillary Clinton. In fact, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Bill actually joined the, the Canadian who was behind the purchase of these uranium assets, joined him on a trip to Kazakhstan to engineer the first deals to, to essentially get him into the uranium ore business. And eventually the Russians end up buying a good portion of U.S. uranium assets. And it's, I think most people would look at this and say, this is beyond sketchy. This mm -hmm. smells to high heaven. Unfortunately, many of my colleagues in the news industry were only, only too happy to look away, pretend like there was nothing going on. Keep moving, folks. Nothing to see here. Move along. But you can't deny the fact that there were too many shenanigans taking place. And when, we, when you have elected officials who pretend the assets of government is their personal property, which is really what Bill did with these, these pardons and commutations. He yeah. pretended as if that power was his personal property and he could sell it as he wanted sure for did. money, gifts, or political influence. Yeah. I mean, and this, the, the emails, the server, um, other than Fox News, and I'm not a fan of Fox News, but if Fox News did not exist, you wouldn't hear about any of these things at all. Like, are the Clintons that tied in to... Do they control the media? Do they? I mean, it seems like they're controlling the narrative that this kind of stuff is not getting out there. Well, you have to remember a lot of the folks who worked the Clintons, either in Arkansas or in the White House, a lot of them today are actually in positions of power within the news media. They help drive the narrative. Don't forget George Stephanopoulos, who joined the Clinton campaign in 1992 when Bill Clinton was first running for the president. It was one of his very first jobs. Stephanopoulos was with him through. Until 1998, when he left the administration, he's now an anchor at ABC News. If you go back and look at George Stephanopoulos's memoirs, All Too Human, he writes that one of his primary jobs early on in the campaign was to help stamp stamp out bimbo eruptions. So the guy who would stamp out bimbo eruptions goes on to eventually become an anchor at ABC News. Was a donor to the Clinton Foundation, something he never disclosed publicly when he would interview either Clinton. It's certainly unethical by far, but he's not the only one. There are folks at CNN and MSNBC who've all come out of the Clinton orbit and they put them on a pedestal. So they're not going to give scrutiny to anything the Clintons do. They just get a free pass. It's unbelievable. It's, it, I mean, it's scary. I mean, what, I think the main lesson I picked up from your book is that so, so so for example jesse jackson got a got a guy out of prison through bill clinton who raped a 15 year old girl like i'm pretty sure the founding fathers that's not what they wanted with this this pardon ability so what what i'm getting is there's one set of rules for everybody and another set of rules for for people in power um it's disgusting now what can be done about it well you know and this is actually this is part of the reason why i wrote the book and i think it's important for your your audience to know this, that this book wasn't written last year. I wrote this book in 2007, only by accident. I was actually doing research on a different topic, stumbled across some of this, began to dig, and I was amazed at how corrupt so many of these pardons were. So I'd written the book, had the manuscript, my agent shopped it around, and all the big publishing houses said, absolutely not. And finally, an insider- Why, why, in why would they say absolutely not? What, what kind of reasons did you get? Well, an insider in the publishing industry finally pulled me aside and said, look, 
It's 2007. Hillary will be the nominee for president next year. She will be the next president. We only want books that genuflect to her. We don't want anything that's critical. So the, my original manuscript was written 13 years ago, and it sat in a box, actually several bankers' boxes worth of material for years. And then uh, after I had my first book published, Washington Babylon, my publisher knew of this first manuscript and, and really urged me to, to get this back out on the street. So at least the record is on out there in public. People know about it. And I have two questions to ask for you. Do you think that Hillary Clinton is done running for president? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't know. I hope so. And you second question. So? And second question. Will Joe Biden be the Democratic nominee come Labor Day? Oh, man. I mean, I, I, I said about six months ago, I don't think that's how it's going down. I, I was starting to think uh, Cuomo was going to be the guy or I mean, Clearly, he's, he doesn't have all his marbles, and I don't think the Democratic Party's comfortable with him. He's been hiding in his basement. But what, what are, you, are you suggesting you think they might? Well, certainly, I, certainly I wanted to get this book published at some point, and then we had a long discussion, and it became apparent that if – I don't believe Hillary's done running for president. I just don't think she's, she's ready to retire and, and sit in a rocking chair and read a book, and certainly she won't read my book. She's not done running for president, and I don't know that – Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. And if you are the Democratic leadership and you turn away from Joe Biden, would you turn to someone like a Mayor Pete who has no national organization, no money, fundraising skills, no mechanism, no network out there, or an Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, the list goes on and on? Or would you go to Hillary, the Clintons who have this amazing fundraising network? They have this incredible relationship with the media. Well, and the ability I mean, to actually open doors. You would think she might be one of the first people they would go to and say, Hillary, Joe's out, you're in. Honestly, I, I don't think the DNC would do that. I think they've learned their lesson that people just don't like Hillary, but she might, she might have that party wired so much that she might have the power to force their hand at that. Um, on, on Hillary, like I, I read in your book that um, about the servers. Now, we, we've been hearing about the servers forever, but I've not gotten a lot of details on it. Um, what are the most damning emails that actually came out from those servers? Like, what did we learn about Hillary from that? I don't care so much that she was using the personal server, but I do, I, I do care that she lied to Congress about her intentions and that she's not in jail yet. Roger Stone's in jail for a much smaller lie. But yeah, what, what, what could we learn from her emails? First of all, the broader issue was the, the sheer amount of classified information that was on an unclassified server. Now, there's reporting out there that elements in the government discount, but there's reporting out there that claims that the Chinese government, as an example, downloaded everything off of her server. And you've got to think that the bad guys out there, the Russians, the Chinese, you name it, the North Koreans, are probably looking at every single person who's ever operated some unclassified system. You know, what's interesting about the, the whole business about the servers was John Deutsch, who was director of the CIA under Bill Clinton, was charged with the crime for doing the exact same thing that Hillary did. He actually used his private personal laptop to download classified information. And he was going to prison for it, except Bill gave him a pardon. Hillary did the no, exact kidding. same thing, but she had classified information that was up to the, the SCI level, the uh, special compartment level, to include what's called code word, some of the highest classified information in our intelligence business. 
on an unclassified system. I think the real issue here, the larger issue, is what the Clinton machine was trying to avoid was was to not respond to a FOIA request. And we've seen this many, many times with others within the Clinton administration. We actually saw it in the Obama administration. And in all fairness, we also saw in the Bush administration, Karl Rove was using a private email address through the RNC rather than his White House email address. They were all trying to avoid having to produce documents in litigation or under a Freedom of Information yeah, Act that's, request. That's the and thing that really what that was all about was the ability to take do government business offline and not have to report it. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, who takes bleach blit, beach bit to their server to wash it and takes hammers to smash up hard drives and cell phones unless you have something you want to hide? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, some of the emails were recovered, right? So what, what kind of damning things did we get the, from those emails? And is there a chance of recovering the other ones? I'm not sure about that. Um, certainly, uh, there's speculation. If anybody has them in this country, it's Google. Um, Google may have them for all we know. Um, some of the things that were in there were some of the quid pro quo relationships that that um, we're talking about the um, Clinton Foundation yeah. doing deals with foreign governments, making appearances if, if if money was being paid or contributions were being made, how important was it to the Clinton foundation to get some kind of payback for Hillary saying something publicly or showing up at an event? Sure. Um, the, the, the number of emails that to this day are believed to be missing still about 30,000 is a pretty staggering number. Yeah, that's the concerning thing. They, they and, tried to destroy those emails. So, I mean, you don't do that just because you're bored. You're, you're trying to hide something. Um, yeah, well, no, no one keeps good news secret. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, again, back to your book, you said that you tried to get it published. Nobody would publish it because they wanted to paint Hillary in a positive light. She was about to become the president, blah, blah, blah. I, I would buy that reason, except for the fact that when Trump was about to be president and as president, the, the bookshelves are lined with books, you know, slamming him. So that that can't be the reason. There has to be another reason why they, they were trying to prevent that. Like, she must have some pool with publishers, even. I'm not sure if that's the case. It, you know, the publishing industry is, is so odd. And the figure I was told that only 5% of all books ever published sell more than 500 copies. So 5% of the industry, 5% of the books float the entire industry. And there are publishers out there. It's not their money. It's somebody else's money. They get to make decisions. You see astronomical advances go to people who don't even sell a book at all. Um, yeah. I just, in fact, I was just reading here, um, Andrew Cuomo, governor of, of New York, right. got a three-quarter of a million-dollar advance and sold 3,000 well, copies. Isn't that never got, play? That's got they to never got their money back. No, nobody's and reading that book. You know, but, yeah, right, and I'm not sure that Andrew Cuomo, not to pick on him, but use him as an example, I'm not sure there's any book he could write that would really – fly off the shelves, not to the tune of three quarters of a million dollar advance. Right. So it's, I think in some respects, part of it, it's kind of play money. You have these folks in a um, publishing house. It's a big conglomeration. It's not their money. What do they care? They like this person. They're pretty cool. Um, that's part of it. And certainly the, there are five major publishing houses. They're not leaning right. They tend to lean left politically. Mm. So they're more than happy to step on a book or to ignore a book they think is not favorable to their candidate, um, whether it's because they support that candidate politically or they don't want it to come back and haunt them if they're the ones that published a book that maybe Hillary didn't like. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes that's sense. That's the way I, I see it. I could it, be wrong. Yeah. I mean, maybe you also could be wrong. Like it seems to me that nobody wants to throw away money. They're not. And I see they do throw a lot of money at certain politicians for books like giant advances that nobody's going to read. It seems to me that's more of that pay for play stuff. But I mean, I don't know that just, it just seems suspicious. Now, um, when Jeffrey Epstein died, right, that, that raised red flags for a lot of people like that story just did not add up. And I'm not going to try to speculate on that. All I know is the, the official story we're getting is not the story. And when that happened, I started like looking into other past events and, and I learned, I learned about, um, uh, who's the guy? Vince Foster, who had killed himself, right? I, re- I read about that one. Mm-hmm. So then I learned, and I read in your book that after Vince Foster died, they wanted to get his documents and they subpoenaed them, but those documents disappeared and later turned up two years later with Hillary's fingerprints. Was there an investigation after that? Yeah, so know what those actually, um, you're conflating two issues. One was, there were records held in his office that disappeared after Vince Foster took his life. There were also the Rose Law Firm billing records that showed the level of activity Hillary Clinton had with respect to Whitewater, which was okay. the big investment scandal. And what was unusual was under the orders of leadership at the, at the Rose Law Firm, they had a lot of their records destroyed, which is unheard of. Law firms don't destroy records, but the Rose Law Firm had records, including billing records destroyed. The paper trail ended, Mm -hmm. except there was one set of billing records left, which Hillary had, and those were subpoenaed, but they disappeared for several years. They claimed they couldn't find them. And then lo and behold, they were found in the the, um, family quarters of the White House. And according to a report, Hillary's fingerprints were literally on the box. Um, by then, the whole investigation had passed. People moved on. But it's difficult to believe when something's subpoenaed and they go, you know what? I had it around here somewhere, but I misplaced it. Sorry, you have to come, come back. That right. just defies logic, defies common sense. Right. Um, as far as Jeffrey Epstein, I don't know much about it other than I do highly recommend the special on Netflix if you haven't seen it. It's a two yeah, or three part series. And that mm-hmm. just blew me away when I watched that. I learned more about that episode than anything else, but that's not going to help me sell any books. Yeah. Now, you know, the papers disappearing on its own, y- you might give a pass, but when you, when you, when you look at all the things added on top of each other, it's all just too much to be coincidence. You know, you got the, the email server, the emails being destroyed. Now we got papers missing. Basically Every scandal in the last 20 years, the Clintons are connected to it in some way. Um, and that it just seems like it almost seems it almost feels like the way the mafia operates, you know, like with these with these pardons, you know, you, you bad person does something bad, buys his way out with the cops. That's that's what these pardons feel like to me. Well, it's kind of like uh, Lois Lerner at the IRS, the whole IRS scandal where her emails disappear, the backup tapes disappear, the backup backup tapes dis- disappear. And after a while, you keep whining, wait a minute, how many accidents can go wrong? Yeah. How many, how many um, documents continue to disappear that are believed to have some incriminating evidence associated with them? 
And it goes back to this whole business with the pardons where Roger was cold calling people, offering to hustle pardon for them Mm -hmm. for a price. That just is unbelievable that would happen. But the sheer brazenness and clearly it had to have his brother's fingerprints on it. Bill, in some form or fashion, had at least knowledge, if not direct involvement, in, in perhaps giving Roger a list of names and saying, call these people. They've all applied for pardons. Here are their cell phone numbers. Well, yeah. I mean, Ro- unless, unless he was just randomly calling prisoners around the country, there's no other explanation for that. Yeah, yeah. So clearly somebody had informed him who would apply. This, it's not exactly public knowledge. There isn't a status page on the website for the Department of Justice that the following people have applied for executive clemency, you had to know, he knew. And he had private cell phone numbers, at least of one person, who was shocked that he had that person's number to call them and say, this is what it'll cost, I can get you a pardon. But in the case of Roger, as I point out in my book, not every person who paid him for a pardon actually got one. People paid him and sometimes didn't get a pardon. Um, Unlike Hugh and Tony Rodham, every person that we tracked down that actually had paid for a pardon, got them. And my speculation is that if Bill didn't deliver pardon to Roger Clinton, he had to suffer with Roger's disappointment. Hmm. But if he didn't deliver a pardon for Hugh and Tony Rodham, he had to incur the wrath of Hillary, and he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> uh, that's funny. That's funny. That makes sense, too. Um, okay, switching gears a little bit. In, in your book, Washington Babylon, uh, you detail scanned, all the scandals basically in the, in the last 40 years in this nation. Um, or I'm sorry, in the nation history. But I've been around for about 40 years. So the recent scandals we've been dealing with is we have, we have the one, you know, Russiagate, and then on the other flip side, Obamagate, right? So it's like Russiagate, that's all we heard about for three years. That's all the media talked about. And from all the evidence, to me, it doesn't seem like there's much there. And now this Obamagate thing coming out where they, they might have been trying to get Trump from the beginning, which in your mind is the more, if either, is the more plausible scenario, which is the bigger scandal? Um, I served the intelligence community for a number of years, so I was in that business. And um, when I read the Steele dossier, it was the most cartoonish thing I'd ever read in my life. And I actually served in the UK. I lived in London. I worked the Brits. I couldn't imagine any member of British intelligence writing anything as awful as that was. And that was my first big red flag. Um, And clearly what we've seen with the various House and Senate investigations, the Mueller investigation and so forth, there was no there there. There was no Russia collusion. What's really disturbing about what people refer to as Obamagate is the level of participation by members of our law enforcement and intelligence communities in manipulating things in order to preserve either the status quo or go after someone that they didn't like for whatever reason. That is is such a foreign concept to me. The whole idea of, of taking an oath of office and adhering to that oath was so important in all the years I worked for the federal government, both in the military and as a civilian, and that people would violate their oath of office for political reasons. I think if if everything comes out, this could make perhaps all the scandals in the past really pale in comparison. People tend to think of Watergate as the high high watermark, if you will, for scandals. And as you mentioned, I, I have nearly 130 scandals throughout 
American history that included political sex, financial, sports, you name it, a whole list of scandals. And of course, if you read the book, you know that if it wasn't for sex, the book would be a lot thinner. Mm. Um, but it, it's amazing the number of people that I think are potentially implicated in this, this effort to end one person's quest for the presidency for whatever reason. It doesn't make a difference what the reason is. It's just fundamentally wrong. I yeah. find that so disturbing. And it seems to be one of these things that isn't just one or two guys in the middle of the organization or one or two guys at the top. It seems to permeate these organizations where people seem to believe that their political motives are more important yeah. than honoring their oath to the office or oh, doing yeah. their job. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you straight up. I'm not, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I don't like Donald Trump, but just from what I've read and what I've seen, it, it seems like there, there was, this was an attempted coup of his presidency from day one. And my only question is, what is the ultimate motivation? What, why did they want to do this? I mean, every election, one side is unhappy about who becomes president. Why this guy? You know, I'm not sure if I have a good answer for that. There might be one possibility is... This is a guy who was as, as far outside as you can possibly get, never held political office, was never, never a government official. So he was as outside as you can get. If you want to believe that there's something that might be called a, a deep state or at least some sort of entrenched bureaucracy where people believe they want to go along, get along, they see a guy who comes in and they don't know who and what he's going to bring in, whether the, his baggage is good baggage or bad baggage. But if he is a disruptor, if he is going to change the status quo, that alone may upset people. Because I go back to a story. I remember when I was living in London, going back to London back in the 1980s. And I remember talking, I was at a dinner party with a number of folks. And I, I was talking about the 1988 election between George Herbert Walker Bush and Michael Dukakis. And the, the conversation came around to the U.S. election, and I just kind of was laying out what I thought the differences in the two, two candidates were. And an Italian at the dinner party stopped me and said, you Americans are so funny. You're talking about a capitalist running against a capitalist. In Italy, we have a capitalist running against a socialist running against a communist. We right. have choices. Sure. And, and there maybe is a bit of truth to that in some respects, um, but uh, – you can make an argument that maybe the parties aren't that far apart in the big scheme of things. I've been arguing that um, a long time. Yeah. And, and I've, and, and all the years I've been in television, I've pointed out that um, it doesn't make a difference whether we have all Republican Washington or all democratic Washington, we still have budgets. They're blown out. Yeah. Spending gone awry. The 12 standalone appropriations measures are never passed as standalone measures. And it just seems that, we continue down this path. No party, no candidate has ever run on the platform of I'm going to spend more money than we have. Never <laughs> in the history has anyone ever said yeah. that. Yet they and all yet do they it. All do it. Yep. Yep. So it, it's an easy thing for them to fall into. Yeah. Um, certainly. Um, I'm gonna, I do want to plug my book once again. Of course, I coincidentally have pictures of both my books here. <laughs> but uh, certainly Washington Babylon, I tell, I tell people it's a fun and amusing read. Uh, nearly 130 scandals throughout American history. Um, the scandals people have heard of, Watergate, Abscam, Teapot Dome, although most people don't even know what Teapot Dome is, but they know it's a scandal. And then I've got scandals that were once the biggest stories of the day and have faded into obscurity. The one quick example I'll give was the Congressman Robert Potter, 
elected from North Carolina to the U.S. House of Representatives in August of 1831, snapped one day, was convinced his wife was having an affair. So he tracked down the two men he was convinced were having affairs with his wife, tied each one up, castrated both men. Oh, my God. Tucked him into bed and summoned the local doctor. And even then, the U.S. House of Representatives would not expel him from Congress. Wow. It kind of makes it makes mean tweets look like nothing. Sure. So and of course, Pardon Gate, which is the review of of all the executive clemency that Bill Clinton had dished out starting in the summer of 1999 when Hillary announced she was going to run for the U.S. Senate. And I looked at all of those pardons and commutations that Bill had dished out in the last 18 months of office. And he went from being the stingiest president of all time to one of the most generous presidents of all time, handing out pardons willy-nilly to including the dead people. In fact, on the final night, as he was hours away from leaving a presidency, the pardon attorney was busy doing internet searches trying to find these people because some didn't even have applications submitted. They got names wrong. They got addresses wrong. He was doing internet searches, trying to figure out who these people were. Were there any, was there any bad information about them? That's how bad it was at the end. Bill was just, give this guy a pardon. Give that guy a pardon. Give this woman a pardon. Yeah. And That's at the end of the day, the three brothers pardoned. Uh, Roger Clinton, Hugh and Tony, Hugh and Tony Rodham collectively made over a million dollars that we know of by people who paid them the hustle of pardons. There were at least 50 pardon and clemency recipients that had direct ties to Hillary. That's an amazing number in and of itself. She was collecting political and financial IUs. She later cashed in when she ran for office. Sure did. And of course, it didn't hurt Bill Clinton either. I mean, he took a a million-dollar contribution from somebody who wanted a pardon for a friend, and that million-dollar contribution was going to the Clinton Library. At the time, Clinton had raised $3 million toward a $200 million goal. So a million-dollar contribution was a pretty big deal to Bill Clinton in January of 2001. He was $197 million short of his $200 million goal. A million dollars can help influence you to give a pardon to someone's friend. Sure can. Well, hey, like I said, I read it. It it was a great read. Uh, People, pick it up. It's available today. Pardon Gate. Mark, thanks so much for for your time. Do you have a website? Anything else you want to throw out there? Well, certainly both books are available. You can pick them up at uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Books a Million. And if bookstores were actually open, maybe there yeah. as well. But I don't know if bookstores will ever open again. Most um, likely not. And certainly people can uh, reach out to me at markhyman.tv. That's my personal website. They can follow me on Twitter and Parlor at Mark Hyman. Love I just to hear got from on you. that. I just got on that Parlor uh, yesterday. Actually, I, I I like that. I mean. We're wrapping this up, but I like I like the parlor because I'm I'm really frustrated with how social media has recently selectively been kind of banishing speech that they don't agree with. Um, so I I I'd suggest to anyone who believes in free speech and just doesn't want their influence get on that parlor. Look, I don't hide the fact that I am a conservative. I believe in smaller government less regulation, lower taxes, constitutional principles, and protection of individual liberties, or what Twitter would consider hate speech. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't consider myself a conservative, but I agree with all those things. I'm on board for all those. I guess I don't consider myself a conservative because I've never seen a Republican actually do any of those things. Um, So I kind of go more towards the libertarian point of view, but it, it would be nice if we got somebody in office who did believe in protecting 
rights. We've not seen it in some time. I agree with you 100%. I am a, uh, that's where I lean libertarian as well. I believe in protection of individual liberties and, and rights. And um, it's not fashionable. It hasn't been fashionable for both no. sides, both political no. part, both political parties, Republicans and Democrats. It's depends on whose ox is getting gored at the time. And um, unfortunately there are social media platforms who may not agree with me. I don't, I've never been banned. I've never been suspended. I don't use bad words, use bad language. I like to think I treat everybody with dignity and respect, but I'm afraid that one day I'll use the wrong pronoun and I'll get yep. banned. Yeah. It, it doesn't even take that much. It, it, it'll happen. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're tightening up. People are losing jobs for just liking a benign comment. Yep, absolutely. I think the I think the I think it was the dean of the journalism school, the incoming dean at the journalism school at Arizona State University, if memory serves me correctly, just in the last couple of weeks, had her job offer revoked because she said, There's some good cops out there. Unreal. Left one job and they fired her before she even took the new job and said no. For they're saying the there are some good cops. Some. That's almost verbatim what she said. You wow. know, there's some good cops out there. Wow. And they revoked her job offer as a dean of a journalism school. Yep. Not even surprising. Not even surprising. You know, uh, back back to the Obama gate, and I asked you what might be the motivation for why they wanted to take out Trump. And when I really look at it all, what I think it adds up to is they this guy was talking a lot about ending the wars which which i was on board with he hasn't actually done any of that but at least he hasn't gotten us into new ones and you know we've been fighting these wars for 20 years every president every administration's been complicit in it and ramped it up and i think that scared them that's just a theory but um you know could be i'm i'm not sure that you're too far off i mean i i retired from the military and I tell people I'm anti-war. I'm not anti-war like throwing bricks at people and pulling down statues. I'm just, I think I'm anti-war like a firefighter is anti-house fires. Sure. You know, yeah. we're there, we do, we have to do, but let's just not go out. And I, I think we've perhaps gotten involved in places perhaps we shouldn't have gotten involved. And I wasn't a fan of, of going into Libya. And I think that's turned into a quagmire. For, for the guy who renounced Muammar Gaddafi after Operation Iraqi Freedom finally said, you know what? I'm giving up all my my um, weapons of mass destruction. I'm cleaning everything out. The guy came clean. Yeah. And then there was this effort to depose him. Remember, it was leading from behind. The U.S. was going to lead from behind right. with mm -hmm. France and, and Britain. It was going to topple Gaddafi. And I think the most important message that came out of that for any despot around the world is, don't give up your secret weapons to the U.S. because mm -hmm. then they'll take you out. Seems that I think way. I think it's a huge disincentive. Um, there really was no reason for us. He for the first time in since 1969 when he seized power for the first time, Muammar Gaddafi was actually moving in the right direction. It's definitely a disincentive because it's it's like uh, it's like smacking the dog when he does the thing you want you want to do. You're given negative reinforcement for the behavior you want. The rest of the world sees that, and you know. Now they're going to play ball with you? I don't think so. And then certainly there's a lot of speculation that, and we know from, from everything that's come out, that Hillary was the single biggest proponent. Um, Obama was opposed to it. Biden was opposed to it. Hillary was the big proponent to go in and take out Gaddafi. 
And the speculation has been all along was that Hillary wanted to build up her bona fides. So when she ran for president in 2016, she would have that as a check mark. Yeah, I don't have any doubt in my mind or in my heart that Hillary Clinton is an evil person. And I hope people read this book and uh, get informed about it because I honestly I had no idea. I had no idea. And, and this is just one more thing to, to put in that column. So, Mark, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, I hope the book does great. Great. Thanks. Appreciate your time. All right, man. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, I just want to remind you that uh, this podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, CBDMD.com. Um, it's a fantastic product. I, I will not do ads for products that I don't use and that I don't like. Like I've told you guys before, I'm not not doing this podcast or this Facebook page to make money. I do it because I enjoy it. But you know, if someone's going to throw money at me, um, I'll take it. If it's something I believe in and something that I use, and I do use this product, it's fantastic on inflammation. As you all know, I've had my spine fused. I've had my shoulder worked on twice, um, two, two surgeries on my shoulder. I've had my left wrist fused, which makes masturbation incredibly hard and painful, so almost not worth it, but, but still worth it. Um, and CBD gets me through all my pains. Um, it's why I'm still able to be 47 and still be this fine, sexy freak that you, that you guys see and know and love. Um, it's from exercise, diet, and CBD oil. So check it out. Use the code that Dad presents. You get 15% off, and you put a little more change in my pocket than what they're paying me to do this ad. All right, guys. Much love.